I'm very honored to be speaking with Mark Isham, whose amazing career has garnered him a Grammy, Golden Globe, and Oscar nominations. His versatility can be heard through his scores like Point Break of Mice and Men, A River Runs Through It, The Hitcher, Blade, Crash, The Mist, 42, and so many more. He scores the extremely popular series Once Upon a Time and Once Upon a Time in Wonderland on ABC, and now he's reteaming with director Frank Darabont for the highly anticipated Mob City, which premieres on TNT. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, speaking today. Uh, it's my great pleasure. So I know you you have an amazing background in music as a you know as a trumpeter and 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 so how did you fall into that musical path and what kind of pushed you towards composing? What led you to film and television? Well, uh, I've always been interested in, in uh, orchestral music. I grew up studying classical trumpet and played in symphony orchestras uh, throughout my youth and into my, um, uh, actually all throughout my 20s, I, I played in the San Francisco Symphony and the Oakland Symphonies. And, um, but I got bit by the jazz bug um, in high school, mm -hmm. started listening to Miles, and, and of course that was about the time that um, Miles was plugging in, and Weather Report was, was starting to come about, and Chick Corea and Return to Forever, and Mahavishnu Orchestra, and all these great fusion bands. And that, that's what sort of took over my life. And I managed to do those two careers for a number of years, but eventually um, the classical music fell away. And I had a, a fairly decent um, jazz trumpet career for a number of years. And then at some, but I was always interested in writing, and I wrote for uh, myself as a, as a band leader. And then I was offered a, a chance to score a film, and I really enjoyed it. And it, I turned out to be actually kind of good at it, <laughs> even though I'd never studied it. I, it. It took me a long time, obviously, that first mm -hmm. film, having no uh, background or, or technical training in it. But um, I had a I had a knack for it, and so I just pursued it, and then so the next sort of decade of my life was was as a recording artist and a film composer. And then I have a family, and, and the the rigors of the, uh, the uh, jazz life and the touring life sort of started to take its toll. Right. And I and I put more and more energy into my film composing career, and uh, a number of years later, I find myself mostly doing that. And, and, and the trumpet has, I must have been fallen to the wayside. Of course, until <laughs> Frank Darabont calls. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, looking at you know music and film music kind of as a whole, what does that what does film scoring mean to you personally as a as a composer as a person? What does it mean to you? Well, I think after doing it now for for quite a long time, boy, twenty years now, I guess. Um, I've come to the realization that really film composers are the, the uh, a large percentage of the, the composers of our culture. In other mm -hmm. words, we're the, we're the guys that are getting the court commissions, the larger court commissions. <laughs> when uh, Disney or a large film company gives you you know six-figure budgets, um, this is, this is an opportunity to really explore modern classical music, and uh, as long as you are our uh, do a good job for the film and for the director and for the storytelling and for the studio and um, you have a tremendous opportunity here to use large orchestras and large electronic palettes and all sorts of exotic instruments and it, it couldn't be more fun and challenging and a creative uh, world to live in absolutely yeah I agree completely um, 
So now for Mob City, this you're working with Frank uh, Darabont again. You worked on The Mist with him before. And so what were the your first conversations with Frank about? How did he pitch the story to you, and what kind of, kind of musical uh, chats did you have with him as a director? Well, he... he... He basically just said, "Look, this is based on the on the book. I don't know if you've read the book, but it's it's, it's a true, based on the true accounting of the history of uh, Los Angeles from the late '40s into the '50s. And this first six episodes takes a period of, well, I, you know, I haven't actually added up, but it probably could be as little as five or six days. Um, in in that history, and and he's so skillfully written this that the historical truths are all there in place but he's written the story of the people just below that you know the guys that whose names weren't in the papers but whose lives are much more interesting and, and lives who we get a chance to um, take a look at and be a part of and it's it's really masterfully written and uh, he, it's an homage to film noir right uh, from from the cars to the <laughs> to the dresses to the language to the uh, to the music and um, and he basically said, you know, let's get some great music, let's license some great songs, let's put some great bands together, come up with a great scoring vocabulary, and just let's have a feast here. <laughs> and and you say it's an homage to film noir, and and you know, so when you do say terms like you know, mob, uh, mafia, gangster noir, these these genre names bring up a lot of you know, classic movies from the past to kind of the forefront of people's memory and their scores as well. Uh, even the re there's a recent movie, Gangster Squad, which kind of revolved around Mickey Cohen and, and that. So how did you try to find your own unique voice for this story while still kind of playing with certain, I guess, genre expectations and archetypes? Like, did you really try to make it a, a part of this world or try to make it its own kind of unique piece? Well, I think I've... I've Hopefully, I've done a bit of both. Mm -hmm. I, I like to think that I've come up with a pretty unique scoring vocabulary, um, but that that pays homage to to at least to some of the things that, and and tastes and uh, ideas that came out of film noir. Right. Um, I, I sort of bent the rules. I think that a lot of the musical influences are purely from the late '40s. I, I tended to, to grab some things from the '50s as well. Our bands are, we could say, are a little ahead of their time. <laughs> they have a definite influence of the cool jazz movement. Having said that, though, you know that there was a very strong cool jazz movement just beginning to flower in Los Angeles down on Central Avenue. And um, but we also, of course, pay tribute to the great swing bands of that period. Um, a great uh, rendition of the Dizzy Gillespie song "Night in Tunisia," and uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, fascinating influences. And the score itself, I, I decided to um, write for string quartet and sort of jazz rhythm section, but not playing jazz. In other words, a, a drummer playing cymbals and with mallets, the bass player sort of just hitting single notes and hitting the bass. And a little bit of that sort of music concrete idea slipping into the whole thing, which of course blossomed in the 50s, but I, I took the intellectual conceit that it was being thought about in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> Paired pianos, things like this. Things that, that uh, Bernstein would have loved. And and, uh, and, uh, and and compositionally, probably, he was probably the greatest influence because I, I feel he's the father of, of a modern American 
music in that sense. Absolutely. Well, that sounds fascinating. Wow, I can't wait to, because I haven't heard any of it, so I can't wait to tune in tomorrow night and check it out. Um, and so now the for, the format of Mob City is pretty, it's quite unique too. It's, uh, you know, three two-hour episodes. Uh, so did you approach this as, as you would, as three kind of two-hour episodes or three two-hour movies, or did you kind of look at it as one big six-hour story arc? Well, I try to look at it as, as much as possible in the one um, six-hour story arc, although it's certainly structured like six episodes. Mm-hmm. Each episode has an ending, and I think it was <clears throat> I think it was a decision later on, once we were already into the six-episode structure, uh, to do two back-to-back. Mm, okay. uh, so I think there's been some re- reshuffling, um, but it can be it can be broadcast anyway. It can be broadcast as as six individuals. It can be broadcast as, as threes, three mm-hmm. two up. And um, but there, you know, it's for TNT, so there are commercial breaks, and and there have to be those those moments uh, where we come to a, a screeching halt and right, leave you right. on the edge of your seat. <laughs> So like so yeah when you deal with that when you're dealing with kind of acts in and acts out is, did you treat it as any other um, as any other series uh, that was structured that way or was it structured like how do you spot that when you go through if you pick this during the spotting sessions is that when you kind of decide this is where it's, the act out is going to be and this is where commercial break is going to be well that those decisions were were made by the picture editor and Frank mm-hmm. um, and 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 quite frankly they were written in the story I mean I don't think you can you can write for television and not plan that sort of right. thing out way in advance, or else you're you're going to be in trouble. Um, so, so we knew the blueprint from the script as to what what these uh, dramatic pauses were going to be. I think the, the the choice was always: do you take the the tried and true, uh, you know, big crescendo to the big bash at the end, mm-hmm. or do you come up with other things to do? And we we did both. There are there are occasions when it was really the best thing to do was just to take the, the ever uh, <laughs> ever effective you know crescendo to the to the bang at the end <clears throat> um, you know sort of what the hell <laughs> what could possibly happen next uh, but then as, as Frank pointed out he said look we can't just do this every time we need you know you know let, let's try can can we go out with a with a grin here I mean he would describe them in different ways can can we wink here at the end mm. or, can we just sort of slip out without even noticing? <laughs> and so there'll be times when we do approach it uh, differently. So in the in the production timeline of this whole series, when did you come in and start writing music? Were all three episodes finished? I mean, all the whole six epi- episode series was it finished, or was it? Did you come on as they were filming? Like when did you start kind of writing music for this? I started quite early, and I think this is one of the, the really brilliant things that Frank had designed. And even had written into the script, <clears throat> the um, music will start in, in a scene, and you will think that it is score. It will be playing, it will play that scene, it will even play the next scene, and then you'll cut to a club, and you'll realize what you've been listening to for the last two and a half minutes is actually a live performance in that club. Oh, wow. So we did a lot of pre-records, uh, pre-recorded music, and then shot them uh, live on the, uh, in the club, um, but Frank always realizing, all right, so we want to be able to start this music earlier, so let's let's shoot, make sure that we shoot the scene so that this part of the song is playing there. And quite frankly, you know, for me, 
who's not an experienced picture cutter, I, I was a nervous wreck as to how this was all going to be put together. I really just put my trust in him and just made the music uh, as best I could and recorded it as, with as much separation and flexibility as we could for him. But he, he worked it out. He and his picture editor and then uh, our music editor just did a fantastic job. And I think there's probably five or six times over the six episodes where he does this technique. And it's it's really a stunning, stunning uh, effect. I love that. Yeah, I, I've, and I've, it's funny because that, that technique is usually used, I would say, in comedies a lot, that when they play with non-diegetic and diegetic music where someone is giving a monologue and there's this very tense violin playing and it pans and there's an actual violin player in the room, but I'm, <laughs> you know, excited to see yeah. it in a very dramatic fashion like that. That's going to be exciting. It's um, very exciting and it, and it really just, it makes the music such a, such a major player of the storytelling, mm-hmm. which, uh, w- without being intrusive, just being there and, and really making a, a large contribution. Absolutely. Um, so now you're also scoring uh, another very successful series, well, two, actually, with Once Upon a Time and Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. So how do you handle two broadcast shows that are, because they're airing at the same time, are you actually scoring both these series at the same time, or is your schedule kind of worked out where you're not working on them simultaneously? Yeah, it's a, it's a leapfrog. <laughs> I mean, the good news is on those shows is that <clears throat> it's the same producers. Mm-hmm and uh, several of the writers and several of the, the uh, um, like post-production, the head of departments are the same for both shows. Right. So that they are aware that for them to keep their jobs for both shows, that there has to be a certain leapfrog in the schedule. And so the, the scheduling uh, guru <laughs> at the beginning of the season came up with a schedule that works. And we all signed off on it. And uh, it's not without its uh, challenges. <laughs> But but it has it has worked out. I can imagine the, the I mean just a re, when I talk to composers on a regular broadcast series, it's just like oh scheduling is crazy. But you're on two. <laughs> yeah. um, but since these shows kind of deal with magic and you know curses and fantasy elements, yet all these characters kind of existing in the real world as well, was it a challenge to nail down the sound for Once Upon a Time and its characters? Um. Well, looking back, I mean, we started two and a half years ago, almost three years ago. Um, it didn't feel like that much of a challenge, actually. For some reason, it, it was one of those things that felt really natural to me. I mean, I've always had a <clears throat> a fascination with these stories, and, and uh, I think it was just the sort of thing that I was ready for and ready for uh, ready for doing. And I think I've been, you know, when you do a pilot of these things, you never know if it's going to go or not. And yet in right. that pilot, the first pilot, once... Once upon a time, we were introduced to like the five major characters, and so I wrote themes for all five of them for the pilot. And um, I, I feel very fortunate that those five themes have really stood the test of the to- of time. And, and we're still three years later, we're still using those themes, and they still work, and people still love them, and and respond to them, and they still tell the story. Yeah, that's a it's a lot of characters to juggle as well. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's something so, I don't normally do. I don't normally write themes for characters. I, I generally write themes for concepts. You know, like in a love story, I won't write won't write the girls' theme and the boys' theme. I'll write the the, the theme of their unrequited love, and then right. the theme of their betrayal, and then the theme of of trust, things like that, which I find serves storytelling much better for for a composer. But for these shows, it's it's very much uh, sort of 
much more on your sleeve storytelling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the themes for characters and, and specific relationships just seem to really help us. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that too. The way, and I, I noticed that through your music, you know, different themes for different kind of, uh, they're, they're more overarching and kind of grander ideas. Um, yeah. But so now you're working on these two series, so both Mob City and Once Upon a Time, they have incredible production design and costumes and cinematography. And so does that does the look of a project, does that have any influence on your music or do you mainly focus on story and characters and uh, setting or as the basis of your creative inspiration? Or does do you try to take in all aspects of the filmmaking process? I love all aspects of it. I find I respond first to the image mm-hmm. and then later to, to what they're talking about. <laughs> Um, there's the colors, the richness, and and I think on both of these shows, because there's a very cinematic quality to both, a very high level of visual uh, quality and, and, and sophistication, um, that it that it uh, you know keeps me inspired as if I'm working on film. Right. I've tried to keep that same point of view. I said, you know, I don't want to change my point of view that I'm doing television here. I want to let's let's. Let's just keep the point of view that these are little films and we're going to do everything that we do it was just like we would a film and, and treat it that way. And, and visually it looks that way, so let's just stay in that mindset. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, well, to wrap up, I always like to, uh, to ask composers this one question. Uh, if you could score any movie ever made with no disrespect to the original <laughs> composer, pretending the original score never existed... Uh, which film would you choose? Oh my goodness gracious me! <laughs> Never been asked. That. Well, good. That's good on me then. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, this is. I, I'm. I'm trying to think why I thought of this because I. I, I sort of took the flash answer uh-huh. out of uh, that I got, and I'm. I'm trying to think of why, if I can justify this choice. <laughs> but for some reason, I thought The Matrix. Oh, okay. And and I just think when I first saw the first Matrix movie, it it sort of shook me. But I thought this is this is the movie that I've always thought should be being made. You know, it's big, it's commercial, and yet it operates at many many levels. You know, it's 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 uh, science fiction, it's fantasy, but there's a, this sort of spiritual. Um, metaphor to the whole thing at the same time mm-hmm. and no respect disrespect to don davis because i think i love what he did oh, that's brilliant it's a brilliant score it is but i just love that type of storytelling that, yeah. that is has a huge imaginative idea that that isn't just what you think it is <laughs> that's more and and therefore you could sit after the movie and discuss it for hours as to what do they really mean by this and, and uh what are we supposed to come away thinking? And, and yet, at the same time, you know, my 16-year-old son can go and, and go through three bags of popcorn and scream and yell and have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great answer. I don't think anyone has said the, ma- the Matrix yet. And people always kind of reach back to the classics, but that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a classic at this point. <laughs> well, it's true. I guess it's, that was 1999, so it's been a while. <laughs> but, Mark, uh, thank you so much for your time. It was such a great honor and pleasure to chat with you today and, and get your perspective and, and point of view. So thank you again so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you.